One of the pastors here, they call me Alan, and we have this blessing for you today. The Lord be with you. We've had a wonderful time of worship so far, don't you think? I've been blessed. I've experienced God here already. Wonderful uh, singing and reading of Scripture and talking to God in prayer with our worship team, listening to God's work through the Salvation Army. So uh, God has wonderful things in store for us today. We're here to now, this next part, to dwell in his words, especially to dwell in what we call the prophets. I want you to do something for me before we begin. I want you to actually pick up a physical Bible. Would you do that? If there's one in your pew or if you have your own, just... I want you to find the prophets. The prophets are in the very middle of the Bible. If you go to, um, after Psalms, you get to Isaiah. He's the first of what they call the major prophets. It might be around page 500 if you have a typical Bible, maybe more like a page 1,000 if you've got a large print Bible. But so find Isaiah, and then you go to the very end of Old Testament, where the New Testament starts. So you'll have something like this then, okay? You'll be holding this middle section of your Bible, the prophets. The prophets are in the middle of the Bible, physically, spatially. And I think that's very um, significant because they're also in the middle, the heart of God's word, spiritually. Because these books called the prophets, there's two categories, the majors, the major prophets, which are the long ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the minor prophets, 12 others, which are a little small, like pamphlets, only a couple pages each. But these group of prophets in the middle of our Bible, people who speak for God, are there, the spiritual heart of God's word, to reveal God's everlasting mercy to us. And today we're going to be looking at one example of one of these prophets named Jonah. But first of all, I want to share with you a a whimsical poem that someone shared with me some years ago in a church where I was preaching. It's a poem about Jonah, and I like it. It says, Now listen, dear people, to a very old tale of how Jonah the prophet met up with a whale. Well, God spoke to old Jonah and said, Go and cry to those hard-hearted pagans and tell them that I give them just 40 days to get humbled down. And if they won't do it, I'll tear their town down. Jonah heard the Lord speaking, but he answered, No! That's against my good judgment, and I will not go. And besides, those people of Nineveh mean nothing to me. I'm dead set against their lifestyle, you see. They ought to be punished, so leave them alone. There's plenty of work for me right here at home. So he went down to Joppa, and there in great haste, he boarded a ship for a different place. God looked at the ship, said, Aha! Said he, Old Jonah is fixing to run off on me. So he set the winds blowing with loud howls and squeals, and the sea got real rowdy and kicked up its heels. Those sailors were frightened, 
and sure that they'd all die till old Jonah realized he just couldn't stand by and watch them all suffer when he was the one God wanted to punish for what he had done. So at last he confessed. It was all for his sin. Then the crew threw him over and the whale took him in. Then that fish said to Jonah, Now don't you forget, I've been sent here to take you out of the wet. You're going to be punished right well for your sin, but now be my guest and please come right in. On beds of green seaweed, that fish tried to rest. He said, I will sleep while my food I digest. But he grew mighty restless and sorely afraid, for he rumbled inside when the old prophet prayed. The third day, that fish arose from his bed with his stomach in knots and a pain in his head. Said he, I must get some fresh air mighty quick, for this filthy backslider is making me sick. So he blinked his big eyes and wiggled his tail and headed for shore to deliver his mail. He stopped near the beach and he glanced all around, then deposited Jonah up on high ground. That's part of the poem. Maybe if I have time, I'll read more of it later. But this is a poem that my children have always enjoyed hearing us read around the table or around the fireplace. Just as I imagine the ancient people of Israel used to have fun telling this story around their campfires and around their dinner tables. It's a story that's fun to tell. It's a story that, um, that has four acts. If you're still in those prophets in your Bible, take a look at Jonah, which occurs near the end of that section of the Bible. It's very small. You might have a hard time finding it, but it's, see, it's only, it's only one page. Um, it's, it, it's done in four acts, four scenes of like a play. And maybe your Bible will have these, uh, t- these headings at the, end of, at the beginning of each scene, like mine does. Scene one, Jonah flees from the Lord. And then scene two, Jonah's prayer from inside the belly of the whale. And then scene three, Jonah goes to Nineveh. And scene four, Jonah's anger at the Lord's compassion. So in this four-scene play, the first one is about Jonah's running away from the Lord. Now, if you recall the sermon I gave a few months ago about the runaway bunny, you may suspect that this running away is not going to turn out exactly as Jonah expects. But that's how the story begins. He's running away from the Lord. Jonah 1.1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish and went down to Joppa and found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then the second part of this scene begins in the next verse. The Lord sent a great wind 
on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship was threatened. It threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid. And skipping down now a ways to verse 12, finally after all the sailors have become terrified and giving up hope of any kind of rescue, Jonah confesses his sin and he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, this may sound like kind of an altruistic act on Jonah's part, and maybe it is, but it also shows how stubborn he is because he doesn't repent of his rebellion against God. In fact, this is just really one more stubborn trick on his part to avoid going to Nineveh. He'll commit suicide. That'll solve the problem, right? We're beginning to realize that Jonah is a kind of a weird prophet. He's a weird prophet who he's mean and nasty and hates people that he's supposed to go and uh, talk, give God's message to. And he even hates himself. He wants to die. And worst of all, as we're going to discover toward the end of the book, he ends up even hating God because he doesn't like the way God wants to show mercy to the people of Nineveh. So Jonah is a weird prophet, um, mean and nasty and hateful and disobedient and rebellious. And as I read all these things about Jonah and this story, it, it, it does remind me of a satire. If you ever watch uh, SNL, Saturday Night Live, this is a classic program that, that satirizes political things by using irony, exaggeration, to make people laugh at something which the comics think we should criticize. And as I read this story, I see something like that in this story because here we have the antics of a bumbling Jewish prophet who tries to run away from God. Run away from God? Wouldn't he know better? But he's set straight by a dumb fish. Then he reluctantly as we're going to see, does visit the Ninevites when he gets vomited up on the shore, covered with seaweed. And then the evil king that we would expect to be the one that's rebellious is quick to repent and listen to God while Jonah just gets mad at God and again tries to run away from his Lord. He even tries unsuccessfully to be a theological advisor to the Almighty. What kind of prophet is this? It's a very strange, untypical story within this group of prophets. And I think it's meant to be telling us something. This was, by the way, one of the favorite stories of Jesus. We're going to see in a minute how Jesus referred to this story. And I think he liked it because it's very much like some of his own stories. He also used often irony and satire, like in the story of uh, the um, Good Samaritan. In that story, you expect the religious people, don't you, to take care of the wounded man, but they walk on past. And it's the man that you would never suspect, the hated Samaritan, who actually cares for this man's wounds. An example of satire. So that's the kind of story that maybe we're dealing with here, a story of irony and exaggeration. And many of the Jewish, uh, as well as early Christian readers of this text believed that um, 
although this undoubtedly was a historical prophet named Jonah, he's a real person in the Bible. But this story is told in a way to, to be like a metaphor or an allegory of something that God wanted to get across to the whole people of Israel. If you look at, at Jeremiah for a minute, that's one of those major prophets. Jeremiah chapter 51. <clears throat> Jeremiah 51 and verse 34. Listen to what this says. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion. Like a serpent, he has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies. And then he has spewed us out. Do you hear any resonance there between these prophets and the kind of the imagery that they are talking about here? Isaiah also refers to um, uh, the captivity of Israel as being swallowed up by a sea monster. So perhaps this is part of what this story is trying to get at too in its humorous, whimsical way, that the people of Israel, like Jonah are being punished for their rebellious attitude toward the God who called them. And uh, why did God call the people of Israel? Israel was God's chosen nation. They They were given special blessings. They were given God's word in a unique way through Moses and all the prophets. But they were not blessed just for themselves, for their own enjoyment, They were blessed to be a blessing. As God had said in the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant made with Abraham, um, I'm going to give you descendants, and from those descendants will come a seed, a descendant who will be a blessing to all the nations. That was the destiny of Israel, was to bring God's glorious love and mercy to all the nations. That's why God gave it to them first. That's the meaning of election. They were chosen for this very special calling or vocation to be God's mouthpiece to the world. So why does Jonah run? We're not told yet in the story in detail. That, is he afraid? Is he just, just uh, hateful toward those people he wants to go to hell? But the Bible does give us some clues as we read through the story. In fact, the very first verse tells us that the great city of Nineveh was great, meaning powerful, and wicked. So these clues are beginning to suggest to us why Jonah is running. But because he runs, because he, like Israel, is forsaking his calling to be God's messenger to those powerful, evil people, the evil empire of his time, Could you return that slide for me? I don't think my my device here is letting me return. A little technical. My finger hit it twice instead of... There we go. This is something dug up in the ruins of Assyria um, in the capital city of Nineveh, which depicts the kind of evil empire that Jonah was 
uh, dealing with. Here we see the, uh, a Ninevite soldier cutting off the hands and feet of a captive soldier. Another one has been put on a pole, crucified on a pole. Their heads, the, the you know, topped off heads of people sitting up on something, some other kind of structure there. Uh, this is something that the Assyrians put up proudly, the Ninevites put up proudly as the, uh, the symbol of their dynasty, of their cruel dominion. This is how they would create fear in people's hearts. So that's, I think that's why Jonah is running. But now he's in a predicament. Because he's run, because he's disobeyed God, he has been swallowed by uh, some kind of sea monster. The Bible doesn't call it a whale, but we often use that when we tell it to children. But it's just some kind of large sea monster that swallows him up. And after three days of being in the whale, it seems like there will be no hope for him. We, ha- we find this prayer in chapter 2 of Jonah, starting at verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord God and said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Now, he's there, we're told, for three days, and after three days, it seems like there would be no hope for anyone to come out alive. Jonah is a dead man. He's a goner. That's how he feels. And we are led to to think that he deserves this punishment. He's such a nasty, disobedient prophet. The King James Version translates the word uh, for grave as hell. And uh, the Hebrew word was Sheol, and the Greek word was Hades. That's where Jonah says he is. He's in Sheol, Hades, hell. And he deserves to be there. But as we go on, we discover that God's persistent, relentless love is greater than Jonah's rebellion and sin. Maybe Jonah remembered this psalm as he was in the belly of the fish. Maybe that's what gave him hope and led him to compose his prayer. God says, through the words of David, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Jonah wants to die. He wants to get away from this God he hates because he hates the people of Nineveh. But even there, God is going to find him. And what we learn as we look at this text and at this story is that God's punishment, because Jonah is being punished, but this punishment is not just retaliation for his evil. It's also meant to be rehabilitation for this guilty prophet. It's not just retribution. It's restoration. God wants to heal this broken man, this mean, vengeful, and rebellious man. Jonah's fellow prophet Hosea had said this in chapter 6, verse 1, when he was reflecting on the misery and troubles and punishment of Israel. 
He says, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. Interesting, isn't it, the resonance between these prophets? Um, Here again is a prophecy of of a, quote-unquote, three days of being torn and punished, but on the third day, God will raise us up and heal us and restore us, even though God is the one who has allowed this to happen. God intends healing for the prophet Jonah, and that's what scene two here is all about. The prayer of Jonah. Some other words in this prayer are these. When my life was ebbing away, in verse 7, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. And verse 9, salvation comes from the Lord. That's how he ends the prayer. And then it comments, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So that's the end of scene two, Jonah's prayer and God's response. It's interesting that in this prayer, technically Jonah still has not really repented. He never says he's sorry for anything in this prayer. He's still a proud, stubborn guy. But at least he realizes that he's being punished and he says, okay, God, I'll um, help me. It's, it's, a, it's a cry for help. Please, God, save me. This is why I said these prophets really are the, not only the, the geographical or the, the physical heart of the Bible, but they're also the spiritual heart because they, they reveal this God who shows everlasting mercy even to those who don't deserve it. And that ultimately is the major message of the whole Bible, the heart of its message. So this is ultimately not a Jonah story. It's not a whale story, as we often think of it. It's a God story. And by the way, I, I don't know if you've noticed the marvelous little um, uh, paragraph in, in this blue insert in your bulletin where it's giving us some guidelines of how to read the Bible, how to read the prophets. I think Pastor Kent put this together, and he did a good job of summarizing this. He says, when dwelling in the Word... Uh, It's easy to slip into moralistic reading that focuses attention on good examples to follow or bad examples to avoid. One way to avoid this is to develop God-centered dwelling that recognizes that these stories are first about God and God's plan to save people. So the question we're asking here is, what does this story tell us about God? It's a story about God and about God's heart is telling us that the purpose of affliction is not to destroy us, but to heal us. I want to share one more uh, cross example from one of the prophets. Jeremiah, in in the book of Lamentations, had these words in chapter 3, starting at verse 1, where he is speaking sort of in the person of Israel. He's saying, I am a man who has seen affliction, Remember, this is part of that captivity. All these prophets are in the context of disaster, of God's allowing his people to go into captivity because of their rebellion and sin. So 
Uh, here's Jeremiah praying in the person of Israel. I am a man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He's driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he's turned his hand against me again and again all day long. In verse 22, But because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And verse 31, For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. Here in all these prophets, whether it's in the uh, didactic words of Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, or in this little parable about Jonah, we're seeing the same message, that it's not God's will through the affliction that he causes as punishment to bring destruction to his people. It's his will to bring healing and to bring salvation. Now we finally get to scene three in the story of Jonah. Jonah goes to Nineveh. There we are. Jonah did it again. It went it went too far ahead again. Can we get that back go back please? Back to the whale picture. Pardon our technology, or pardon, pardon the klutzy pastor trying to use technology. Oh, there, there we are, okay. I love this painting. This is a painting from ancient Christian art that shows uh, the prophet Jonah preaching out of the belly of a whale. There is, there's a sermon manuscript there, and he's now giving a message. But notice where he's doing this from. It's the belly of the whale. This was a very meaningful, important symbol for early Christians who did this art. In fact, there are actually some pulpits, some literal pulpits in Europe that are built like whales, where the preacher will climb up the stairway into this, through the body of the fish, all the scaly fish body, and then he, he ends up at the top, and he stands between the gaping jaws of this huge sea monster, and there's where he preaches his sermon. They're called whale pulpits. If you Google this on you know, your computer, you can see pictures of them. Google whale pulpit. And what's the idea here? It's, it's the idea that the message of this preacher is meant to be coming out of his own experience of judgment and salvation. Um, both Jonah and Nineveh are lost. Both Jonah and Nineveh deserve to go to hell. Both Jonah and Nineveh are being saved by the magnificent, unexpected, earth-shaking grace of God. So in this story, as it comes to a, a conclusion... We finally come to um, scene four. Jonah gets mad at God. 
In chapter 4, it says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Why was he angry? It's because when he preached his five-word sermon in Hebrew, his five-word sermon was essentially, you are going to hell. That's all he told them. Even that is odd. He didn't say anything about God in the sermon. At least there's nothing in the text about God. I think about God's mercy. He still seems like he's kind of reluctant to even give this message. You are going to hell. But miracle of miracles, when he gives this brief message, the king of Nineveh, the leader of the most evil empire of history at that time, repents. All the people repent. Even the cows repent. It says that the people and the cows all put on sackcloth and fasted. That's why Jonah, in scene four, is so mad at God. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So now, O Lord, kill me. It's better for me to die than to live. The Lord replied, are you right to be so angry? Once more, we're surprised by the weirdness of this prophet, Jonah. He's trying to be a theological advisor to God and tell God what he should do. He's angry at God and wants, even now, to run away from God. and He wants God to kill him rather than to go along with God's heart for these people. This is his reasoning, I think. Doesn't Nineveh still deserve punishment? What would you say? Yeah, I think he's right. Isn't God bound to satisfy justice? Isn't God a just God? Can God retract a just verdict? What happened to an eye for an eye? Isn't that part of God's law? These are all questions, legitimate questions, that would go through the mind of Jonah and maybe help us be sympathetic with why he is so angry with God. But here is what needs to happen. Jonah needs to have his mind broadened to the breadth of God's mercy because God says that my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So this is why the ancient Christians love to depict Jonah as, I mean, Jesus himself, like Jonah, as being swallowed up from the whale and uh, spit up from the whale because they believed that Jesus had shared the judgment of humanity by going into death and dying on the cross. Here's how Jesus reflected on Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees and teachers said to him, Teacher, we want to see some miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights 
in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The message of this uh, figure coming out of the whale's belly for Matthew and for all the early Christians is that Jesus has taken our judgment of death upon himself, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us all to God. And now, raised up on the third day as the risen Lord, he is not reluctantly like the first Jonah, but now as the better Jonah, he is proclaiming this message of grace joyfully and enthusiastically to the world. He says, Go into all the world and proclaim this gospel. Make disciples of all nations. There's a wideness of God in God's mercy, the old hymn says. And that's what Jonah is being challenged to understand. The very conclusion of this book is God's appeal to Jonah. He says, Can't you see how I value the thousands of people who live in Nineveh, as well as all those animals? Jonah's answer? We don't know. He doesn't say. Just like many of Jesus' parables, it's left open, hanging. And that's because its message really is for us. It's messing with you. It's messing with me. It's asking, are you okay with God's love for your enemies? Aren't you glad that God loves everyone and even puts up with the Jonah in each of us? And so in closing, I want to just uh, finish up a few more lines from that whimsical poem. When Jonah got mad, when God showed his grace, because he still found it hard to stomach that place, it really was shameful how Jonah behaved. He acted as though he'd never been saved. Although he'd been rescued, though guilty as hell, he questioned that pagans are forgiven as well. God still seeks the lost in near and far places, for the news of salvation must go to all races. Your Nineveh may be next door or maybe some distant shore, but when God tells you go, you'd better say yes. Or like dear old Jonah, you'll make a real mess. Let's bow our heads as we pray. God of Jonah, God of Israel, God of the church, you deliver us from death, from hell. You save us in spite of ourselves. You forgive us for Jesus' sake. You call us to share your undeserved salvation with a world that still does not know your name. Where shall we flee from your presence? Gracious God, even now, Your hand leads us. In Jesus' name, amen.